So a question we've been exploring the last couple weeks is, what should the church look like in this day, at this time, in this place? And the image that we have been exploring is, it should look like a table in the wilderness. A table in the wilderness. We believe that no matter how weary the circumstances may be, that God's table can be found. God's table can be found. We're not meant to avoid or escape the wilderness, but to actually embrace it and journey deeper in search of God's table in the midst of it. And last week, we considered how we as the church are called to be a wilderness people. We're actually called into the wilderness, not pursuing fame and fortune or power and influence, but pursuing God and God alone. This is who we are meant to be. It's what we've seen in John the Baptist as we've been dwelling in this passage at the beginning of Matthew 3. He began setting the table of God's kingdom, of all places, in the wilderness. Uh, Last week, we, we talked about the early community of the desert mothers and fathers who were, were called to flee, be silent, and pray always. They were a picture of what it looks like to be a, a, a literal table in the wilderness as they fled out into the desert in pursuit of God. We desperately need places like this to withdraw from the noise of the world and the noise that's within our own selves and seek God in prayer. And though spaces like this may not literally be out in the wilderness, they also might be. Uh, And this is why when I graduated from college, I decided to go on uh, my first solo camping trip for a couple of nights, right? I I just graduated from college, all of that stuff, um, and uh, I lived in Texas at the time. So I packed up my Bible, a journal, a tent, some food, and hiking shoes, and headed out to this little campsite in the woods in the middle of central Texas. And I spent time for a couple of days alone and quiet, reflecting on college, having just finished that, uh, and, and wondering what comes next. And just spending time with God there. I prayed, I read scripture, and, and I went on a lot of long, meandering walks in the woods. And it was great. It was this wonderful opportunity to, to slow down and to become rooted just like the trees that I was walking among. But even though the wilderness can be a very refreshing experience, I also saw how it can be a very refining experience as well. Uh, You see, as I was walking among these trees, uh, a couple of years, or actually about a year earlier uh, from my camping here, there had been a raging wildfire 
in this forest. Uh, actually, the largest wildfire in Texas state history, at least at the time. And though there were still some towering trees around, as I walked through the woods, there was also much charred remains of underbrush, uh, of blackened limbs that had fallen. And I saw that the wilderness is a place that is exposed to the elements. And these elements can be very powerful and very refining as wildfire burns. And we encounter this kind of, of powerful, refining fire in the wilderness where John preaches. And so if you have your Bible and want to follow along, uh, we'll continue in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we'll be reading uh, some of, of what we've just read from our dwelling passage, but we'll also continue a few verses further along in Matthew chapter 3. John comes setting the table. He comes preparing the way in the wilderness, but he also speaks multiple times of burning fire, like a wildfire in the wilderness. So let's read together. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 7. When he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you for the times that your word speaks hard things as well. God, we ask that as we listen to what you have to say to us, that you would, in fact, kindle the fire of your spirit in our hearts. We ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John is a voice calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he comes into the wilderness proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And surprisingly, as we've seen, people actually came. 
right? They actually came and showed up confessing their sins and, and being baptized. It's exciting. It's inspiring. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up, and everything changes. The whole tone shifts, right? It goes from an inspiring revival to an incisive rebuke. You brood of vipers, he calls them. Why the sudden shift? Well, there's at least two things that stand out to me. Power and status. Power and status. First, uh, power is one thing I notice. Notice how Matthew describes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 7 says, They came to where he was baptizing. Not they came to be baptized. They just came to where he was baptizing. Right? They approached like religion inspectors, coming to evaluate, to interfere to see if, if this stuff that John was doing would, would pass their test or not. See, they're used to having religious power. They're used to being in places of authority and in, instructing others. So when they arrive, well, they continue in that posture. We have the answers, right? We're in charge. They don't listen to John in order to reflect on themselves and respond. They come to John to critique and look for ways to correct what they might not agree with. They are not open to being changed and transformed. And so John turns up the heat on them. Right? And in addition to assuming their own power, we also can see that they're relying on their own status. Right? We don't have to worry about anything because we're children of Abraham. Right? Once more, this functions as a barrier to transformation. Religious people run the risk of relying on our own status as religious people to be saved, rather than opening up our hearts to the God who saves. So in verse 9, John sets them straight. Don't think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones here, right, they're in the wilderness, out of these stones here, God can raise up children for Abraham. John makes it clear it's not about you and your status, but about God and God's action. That's what this is all about. And really, this is good news. This is good news because if God can turn stones into children, well, it means he can turn hard hearts soft. It means that there is no one beyond hope. No stone is too hard for God to transform. No heart is too hard for God to reach. 
But softening a heart can be a challenging and a painful process. And that's why John starts talking about fire. That's why he starts talking about fire. Because fire is the means by which hard hearts are made soft. Fire is the means by which lifeless stones are forged into beloved children. Fire is the way that toxins and impurities are removed to make water fresh again or to make gold shimmer again. That's what fire is all about. You see, in our passage, we read about the coming wrath and we read about burning fire. These topics are not very popular. Wrath and fire, right? Uh, probably not things you were hoping to hear about today, right? Let's go to church, you know, have some encouraging time. Wrath and fire, right? Welcome. Glad you're here. Right? Uh, these are not popular things to reflect on. But here's the thing. I think that these images have been wildly misused and need to be set in their proper context. Because these images have often been used like spiritual threats. And they've been used to scare people into something or out of something. Often, God's wrath and burning fire have been presented as bad news, right? Bad news. I've heard it said multiple times that, well, the gospel is good news, but before you can hear the good news, you got to know the bad news. But here's the thing. I actually don't think that wrath and fire are bad news. I actually don't think that wrath and fire are bad news. I think they're meant to be really good news if we can only hear it as it's meant to be heard. Here's why. Wrath means that God is not indifferent. It means that God is not disinterested. And it means that God is not uninvolved. Wrath means that God cares. When God sees a hurting child, he's not unaffected. When God sees people manipulating and controlling one another, he doesn't turn a blind eye. When God sees suffering and abuse, he gets angry. When God sees his beautiful world become broken, he responds to that. God's wrath means that God cares. That's why it's good news. There is very little that makes God as angry 
as what John sees these Pharisees and Sadducees doing. And later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will have much to say to them. You you make up heavy burdens and throw them upon others. On and on it goes. The, The worst thing is when religious people use religion to harm others. And so God is angry about that. John is angry about that. And Jesus will be angry about that. I've, over the last couple months, had the opportunity to to journey with this small group of people through Zoom uh, who have left their churches in the last year or more uh, because they were harmed in those churches. They experienced various measures of abuse in those churches. Uh, and, and we've kind of connected with one another and gathered and, and spend time once a month sharing stories and listening to what those experiences have been like. And, and one of the things that, that is my great hope as, as this group meets is that these, these people who have been hurt and, and feel very angry at the churches that have hurt them, I really hope they can see that that anger they feel is God's anger. That God is just as unpleased with churches that would harm people as the people who leave those churches are. I kind of see this little group as almost like a little, a little group of desert mothers and fathers in some ways, right? People who had left churches not because they rejected God, but because they wanted God. God's wrath is good news because it means he cares. It means he cares. And God cares because God deeply loves. And wrath is an expression of that love. This is good news. And then there's fire, right? Then there's fire. Fire is also good news because it means that God not only cares about the broken world, but acts to fix it also. He doesn't only care, he's not just moved, but he's actually going to do something about it, right? He doesn't just leave broken pieces lying around. He brings the welder's torch to put them back together. He doesn't just leave polluted water contaminated, but he brings it to boil so that it can be fresh again. He doesn't leave precious metals out to rust, but he refines them with fire. This is who God is. He not only cares, but he acts and wants to see things made new and restored And this is one of the primary ways we see this image of fire used in Scripture. It's not primarily about destruction. It's about restoration. It's about growth. Any gardener, I know there's several of you, any gardener knows that for plants to flourish, 
They need to be pruned. In order for a plant to reach its full potential, it needs to be cut back. There was one summer that my stepbrother was interning with the Forest Service, and I, I was just a kid, and he was in college at the time, but I remember hearing that he would go out and they would start these controlled fires out in the forest, and I did not understand, why are you starting fires in the forest? Uh, until later, I learned that that's how you prune a forest, right? I mean, a plant, you take some scissors and you clip it off, but how do you prune a forest? Well, you do it with fire. That's how you prune a forest. In order for the forest to be healthy, parts of it need to be burned away. And we are no different. We are no different. There are parts of us that need to be burned away. There are parts of us that need to be welded back together. There are parts of us that need to be purified. That's what this image of fire teaches us. This image of fire is not about a God who hates us and wants to destroy us. It's about a God who loves us and wants to see us restored. That's what the fire means. It's primarily a picture of refining. And Paul uses this picture, he uses this image in 1 Corinthians 3. He's speaking to a community about building up a community of people in faith. And he says it's sort of like, like building materials. He says, you know, Jesus Christ is the foundation uh, that, that we're building on. Uh, but then from there, he goes on to say, if anyone builds on this foundation uh, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, well, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day that is coming will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So when the fire comes, well, the, the wood, the hay, the straw, it's all going to be burned away. But then the gold and the silver and, and the fine stones, they will not only remain, but they'll actually be refined. Right? Fire has this amazing double action that it does. It, it, it removes the things that are weak. And then the things that are strong actually become stronger. Right? Uh, you, you put a piece of wood in the fire and, well, farewell to the wood. But you put a piece of gold in the fire and it comes out purer, brighter, and stronger than ever. That's what fire does. The weakness is removed, and the strength is made stronger. This is what wilderness fire does for God's people. Too often we have made passages like this about a future destination. Am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? When they're actually meant to be about present construction 
What am I being built with? It's not about a future destination. That's not what John's talking to these people about. It's about what are you being built with? What is your life being built with? Will the materials of your life be burned up in fire? Or will your life be made stronger by it? It all depends on what we're building with and what we're being built by. Power, wealth, that's, that's burned up in the end. It's not worth anything in the end. But faith, love, these are the things that endure. These are the things that in times of testing grow stronger. What is your life being built with? The reason why God's people are called to be a wilderness people is because the wilderness is a place where the the building materials of the world are sparse. But the building materials of God are plentiful. In the wilderness, there's no fame. There's no fortune. There's no power to be had. There's no one to have power over. But in the wilderness, we find the immensity of God's heart. We find his love. We find the call to turn to him. This is why those desert mothers and fathers went out to the wilderness to live lives that were built by God and not by all the other distractions. Thomas Merton once wrote that the desert fathers believed that the wilderness had been created as supremely valuable in the eyes of God precisely because it has no value to men. The wilderness is supremely valuable to God because it is worthless to everyone else. That's why God loves it so much. But what would it be like to see our lives that way? What would it be like to see our church that way? Not looking at buildings and budgets, not looking at power and status, but looking with deep divine love and affection and finding supreme value in the things that the world would call worthless. That's what we learn in the wilderness as all the worthless things are burned away. The wilderness is the place where we gain eyes to see this way. It's the place where we're refined by fire. Amma Sincletica, one of the desert mothers, said this. She said, you were iron, but fire has burnt the rust off of you. If you're righteous and you fall ill, you will go from strength to strength. Are you gold? You will pass through the fire purged. Have you been given a thorn in the flesh? Exalt 
and see who else was treated like that. It's an honor to have the same sufferings as Paul. Are you being tried by fever? Are you being taught by cold? Indeed, Scripture says, we went through fire and water, but you brought us to a spacious place. What would it be like to look at the fires that we face and say, what is this teaching me? Right? Instead of complaining or lamenting, to actually learn from them. It's through fire that we're brought into this spacious place. And it's in the wilderness that we find the table of God. And there's another way that fire is used throughout Scripture that really is, is, is the next progression of this. Because it's not only a refining force, but fire is also a picture of God's glorious presence. Right? Moses encounters the presence of God where? In a burning bush out in the wilderness. And later the nation of Israel would be led through the wilderness by what? A pillar of fire. And later the disciples would be empowered by the Holy Spirit with tongues of fire appearing before them. Fire is this image of God's powerful presence, his glorious presence. And John shows us that as well. In verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who comes after me is more powerful than I am. I'm not even worthy to, to carry his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? John says, I can only call you to change, but the one who comes after me can actually change you. Right? I can call you to God, but Jesus who comes after me will actually empower you with God's presence as he imparts the Holy Spirit. And this is what it means to be God's people. To be a people who carry the presence of God. To be a table in the wilderness. To be a people who blaze with the glory of God's presence. A people whose lives shine with the light of the Holy Spirit. That our living would be so different that it would be seen as God in our midst. Another one of my favorite stories from the Desert Fathers is the story of Abba Joseph and Abba Lot. Abba Joseph and Abba Lot. Um, Abba Joseph says to Abelot, you cannot become a monk unless you become like a consuming fire. So, so seeking God means becoming like a consuming fire. And so Abelot responds and asks him, well, as, as far as I can, I, I stay in my little office, I, you know, I do my prayer, I fast a little, I pray and I meditate, I live in peace, as far as I can, I purify my thoughts. 
What else can I do? And then Abba Joseph stands up. He stretches his hands toward heaven. And it says his fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to him, if you will, you can become all flame. Well, it's a strange story to hear, but, but listen to it. Right? This is what we're called to. To be a people burning with the fire of God. Not merely a bunch of religious activity. That was the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? They're doing their things, they're checking their boxes. They were comfortable with their praying and, and, and fasting and studying and religious services. And they believed because of those things, they had arrived. And these spiritual practices are important. Right? These spiritual practices are formative, but they're not the point. They're not the end in themselves. They are not the destination, but rather the journey. And so, yes, we should be a people who pray, who meditate, who forsake the things of the world and seek after God. But, but I hope that we, like Abelot in that story, as we do these things, can continue asking but, but what else can I do? What else? And then we can hear that invitation of Abba Joseph, if you will, you can become all flame. If you will, you can be entirely transformed. Not just your actions, not just the things that you do, but your very heart will be changed. And you can become all flame. We never finish this journey of growing in God. We can never assume, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, that we've arrived. But we can always take another step. We can always continue letting this fire burn more and burn brighter. This is what we're called to be as God's people in the wilderness. Letting the worthless things burn away so that we might hold even more dear the treasure of God's kingdom. So I encountered that burned-up forest in my retreat after college. And I saw trees that were still standing, and I saw charred pieces scattered about the ground. But as I continued that hike, I saw something else even only a year after those wildfires blazed. Because coming up, you had to look close, but coming up was some of the brightest green I've ever seen. The green of new growth that was only possible because the wildfire had burned away everything that needed burning. It was otherworldly, it was, it, it's, I feel like if I had been there at night, it would have been glowing. This new growth is what comes when we allow God's fire to do its work in our lives and in our hearts. And so may we be a people in the wilderness who invite the fire of God, who allow our hearts to be made soft so that we might be made new. Amen.